can turn in your Bibles to Mark 11. Mark 11, verse 12. And as you get there, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Mark 11, verse 12. It's been since December 11th, since we were in Mark. So we'll do a little refresher here. Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, what a difficult passage. Help us this morning to to understand what you have to say, what your son said 2,000 years ago, and what your Holy Spirit is saying to us today. And Lord God, we ask that you would transform hearts even in this time. Thank you for the fruit that we have seen recently You are saving people. We ask that you save more. We pray for our families and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers that you would use us to share the gospel with them. That they would hear and that their hearts would be open and that they would respond to the gospel. Father, this morning we want to understand what it means to have faith. We want to understand what it means to truly pray and trust and believe. God, this morning we come before you to hear from your word. Not to insist on our own understanding of it, but to glean from what you have said. It is your word, and so we pray that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the things they tell you in um, preaching class is to have a good introduction. And uh, that's my weakness. I don't do good introductions. Um, Pastor Ron has been working with me on that and asking me to to work on that and to to figure out new ways to introduce the text. My feeling is this: here's the Bible. Let's read it. And let's go. But um, I, I need to hook some of you. I think I just did. Uh, but but in all seriousness, um, we uh, live in a country of great health, of great wealth. Um, we have seen in the past century uh, the life expectancy just shoot um, way, way up. 
Um, we uh, understand that we uh, have incredible health care, no matter what your position on that in political debate would be. Um, we have incredible health care available to us. And yet, we are still surrounded by death. Um, this past, uh, this morning, um, a teacher who taught me Greek three years ago passed away. Um, she um, had cancer for the last year and a half, and it attacked her zealously. And she um, looked to God zealously for his um, healing and his sustenance. And she passed this morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, surrounded by friends and family, with no, no doubt where she was. Uh, I worked with a gentleman who is a pastor down in Huntington Beach. When, uh, before I came on staff here, I worked at a Liberty Christian school in Huntington Beach as a teacher. And he was a full-time pastor but taught adjunct for a few classes and um, this past year, almost a year ago, uh, his 18-year-old son, who I had in several classes, um, had to go to the hospital, um, just having trouble with his health. He always had, um, needed a spinal tap, um, and they had him in observation. In his unconscious state, he vomited and choked on his vomit, and um, the air stopped going to his brain for about two minutes. Um, the doctors ran in. Uh, he is recovering ever so slowly from a vegetative state. Um, an 18-year-old who is in a, a multi-thousand dollar uh, chair. Um, their family is deep in debt from the costs of health care. And three weeks ago, um, his wife went to be with the Lord. Um, who died, She died of cancer as well. And he's been very open on his Facebook page to, to struggle openly with what this means. Um, we believe in a good God. We sang um, about our good God. He is stronger. He is healer. And it is only natural to wonder, why did you not heal? And this passage presents us with these issues. These are not simple issues. I am not going to solve things in your heart today just by one sermon. These are things we wrestle with, that we need to wrestle with. Glib answers do not suffice. If you have lost someone, um, you've, you've had well-intentioned people um, say ridiculous things to you to try to help you in your grief. Um, we don't want to settle for surface-level answers. We want to dig and to see what God is saying. We also live in um, one of the wealthiest parts of the country. And we are surrounded by the megachurch. It basically started here in Orange County. Um, praise God for those good megachurches here in Southern California. And God help the megachurches that do not honor him. Um, we are surrounded by teachers that misuse this passage, that abuse this passage. And they not only abuse the passage, they abuse the people that listen to them abuse the passage. And so we want to be careful today. We want to be cautious. We want to ask God to interpret this for us through his Holy Spirit as we look at it. You'll, you'll see on your notes um, that... You have a section called What Has Gone Before. It's been four weeks since we've been in Mark. Um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And we need to catch up. On December 11th, Pastor Ron um, preached on uh, what is called the temple cleansing and also the cursing of the fig tree that we read this morning. Um, I just decided to include in your notes Pastor Ron's points from four weeks ago. Um, I figured no better way to summarize it than um, the one who preached to us God's word. And so we're just going to review real quickly 
and see uh, what has gone before. If you'll remember, um, in the chapters leading up to chapter 11, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He completes his Galilean ministry. He's headed south um, with the Jews who would head down to Jerusalem for the Passover season. So there are large crowds um, going down to Jerusalem. And Jesus continues to teach his disciples, but he begins to, to teach them almost exclusively and not do as much with the crowds. And you'll remember there were three um, prophecies where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise. And he does that three times. And each time the disciples have some kind of response slash misunderstanding. Um, Peter, in a matter of verses, uh, declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and in a matter of verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. (laughs) That is not a good day for Peter. (laughs) To the, to the heights, down to the depths. And you see James and John, who misinterpret God's word, who want to be at Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom because they want power. Um, we see that they're, they're arguing amongst themselves about which disciple is the greatest. And Jesus rebukes them for those things. As we, as we get closer to Jerusalem, Jesus goes through the, the, the city of Jericho, heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. And then the next passage we get begins what, what we in church history have called Passion Week or Holy Week. And so in chapter 11, in verse 1, we start with Sunday, Palm Sunday. Jesus enters the city on a donkey and the crowds are singing and shouting and praising and dancing. And we see that the people begin to somewhat understand what is going on and who Jesus is. In verse 11 of chapter 11, he entered Jerusalem, looked around, went home to Bethany. On the following day, in verse 12, it's Monday, and Jesus goes into the temple and deals with the corrupt, with the faithless and fruitless leaders of the nation of Israel. And that brings us to Tuesday, Tuesday of Passion Week. Tuesday is the most comprehensive, the most fully covered day of Passion Week. Um, in fact, it's going to go in the book of Mark through the end of chapter 13. So we'll be camped out on Tuesday for quite a while. Which, which is, it's easy for us to go, okay, this, this Sunday we talked about this, this Sunday we talked about this. It's going to take us three or four Sundays to get through this. But it happened in one long day for Jesus. The, the rest of chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13 all happened on the same day. And so it is a long, exhausting day in the temple. But we started in verse 12, reading to backtrack a little bit. And on the way into Jerusalem, um, we saw pictures and maps in the past weeks. Um, Jesus and his disciples are staying in Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem, with their friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who incidentally was just raised from the dead by Jesus a few months before. And they would go into the city during the day and come back to Bethany at night. And it is in verse 12 that they pass a fig tree. Jesus is hungry, sees a fig tree. Pastor Ron preached on this. And and we saw that the fig tree became a living, not breathing, living, photosynthesizing (laughs) parable on the side of the road that Jesus uses to compare to the temple. And he saw the tree, if you remember, and he goes up expecting fruit. And there's only one problem. There's no fruit on the tree. But there should have been. There were leaves, and that should have indicated that there was fruit there. And Mark very, very ingeniously sandwiches the temple 
cleansing in between these two mentions of the fig tree. So we talked about the fig tree when Pastor Ron preached on it. And for my sake, he didn't touch on it a lot so that I could explain some things. And then we have the temple cleansing. And then we've got the end of the sandwich today in verses 20 through 26. But if you look at Pastor Ron's notes from last time, um, Jesus assessed the spiritual fruit in the temple just as um, he was going to assess the fruit on the fig tree. Jesus used the tree, second, to show that fruit matters more than appearance. The appearance of the tree seemed to say, come eat fruit off of me. There was no fruit. The temple seemed to say, come worship God freely and openly. And instead, what we see, we see people inside the temple being loud, disruptive, perhaps um, stealing, perhaps making undue profits off of people traveling from dozens and hundreds of miles away, and inhibiting the place called the court of the Gentiles, the closest place the Gentiles could get to the temple. This was what was happening. And so Jesus does not respond in a British accent with a funny-looking perm and saying nice things. No, he, he zealously removed the affront to worship in the temple. It might be an overstatement to say that Jesus was violent, but he sure was not gentle. Um, he's upturning tables. Uh, I've always thought that would be a fun thing to do in a sermon, but that might be a little disruptive. But that's kind of the point. Jesus was disrupting what was going on. And so that was the, the beginning. That was what's going to lead us right into the verses we're covering today. So today I want us to see the consequence of fruitlessness. We're going to see what the consequence of fruitlessness is. We're also going to see what the remedy to fruitlessness is. There, there's, not, there's not this sense of Jesus saying, you're all wrong, good luck finding the way. Jesus, Jesus rebukes, he judges, and yet he gives away. And we'll see the fruitful response of faith. It's the centerpiece of this passage. What is faith? And then last, we'll see the barrier to effective prayer. So point one in your notes is Jesus reveals the consequence of fruitlessness. Jesus reveals the consequence of fruitlessness. And look at verse 20. It's a very simple descriptive passage. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And one of the questions you should have reading this is, well, if they're going in and out of the city and Jesus cursed it the morning before, didn't they notice it? the day before? Uh, I think a very simple answer is they came home uh, when it was dark. It says in in evening they would come home, and so they did not see it um, on the side of the road. Either that or the majority of the drying up happened during the night. Whatever the case, sometime between three and six in the morning, um, Jesus and the disciples are back on the road going to um, Jerusalem, and they see the tree. Some important things here. Um, the ESV says withered. The Greek means dried up. And that's kind of, just, I think, a better way of thinking of it. It's it shriveled. It dried up. Some of you um, are amateur farmers. <laughs> you have um, wannabe gardens. And um, you kill more things <laughs> than you end up helping live. Right? How, raise your hand if you've done that. Yes, okay. People are looking at me like I'm saying bad things. It's true. <laughs> Especially if it's a present, right? Oh, that's nice. And you forget to water it. What happens? It dries up. It doesn't turn nice, vibrant colors. It turns brown and and starts to fade and starts to fall apart. And so that is what this tree is doing when the disciples see it. It is withered. The day before, it had leaves. Okay, this is an astonishing thing. It had leaves the day before. Jesus thought that it was going to have fruit on it. Curses it. 24 hours later, it's dried up. It's shriveled. 
it's withered. It's withered from the roots even. From the roots, from the very source of what should make it a vibrant, healthy tree. It has been dried up. Now fig trees, Pastor Ron mentioned this when he preached last. Um, fig trees are prominent in the Old Testament. They several times are used um, as a metaphor for the nation of Israel. Um, and we see that throughout Scripture with all kinds of different plants, vines, um, things like that. And, and so it's very easy to see the, the, the metaphor, um, the fruit that's come of it. What are the fruits of your labor, we say sometimes. And it's, it's very easy to see this in, in the stories in the Old Testament. When the spies go into Canaan to scope out the land, one of the things they see and they look forward to getting are figs. Um, there were wild figs. There were fig farms. Um, they were available in many locations in the land of Canaan. Um, the Lord says in Jeremiah 8, about the children of Israel. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. In Hosea 9, the Lord says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. And so we see the fig tree used as this metaphor for the possibilities of great fruit, but the failure to be fruitful. In fact, if, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 13, the next book in the Bible, Luke 13, in a different context, but similarly, Jesus uses the fig tree in a parable. And we're just going to read the parable just to show a, a comparison. Luke 13, verse 6. Jesus is, is talking about um, a barren fig tree. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can finish it. Cut it down. That is the fate of a fruitless tree, to be cut down. Jesus, in Mark 13, where we'll be in several weeks, is also going to talk about this fig tree and use it again as a metaphor. Um, all that to say, the disciples would have understood this. They were familiar with fruit fig trees. They were familiar with the scriptures that talked about fig trees. This would not have been something out in the out and just kind of like have to grasp it. And Jesus used something on the side of the road, something they saw, made it a teachable moment, and said, look, let me make a metaphor, a parable, out of this. And so it is important to see that this tree that was vibrant and supposedly um, good to the sight for fruit had withered away. And Peter, in verse 21, takes a look and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter's a smart guy. He observes what has happened, points it out to everyone, um, Maybe they had forgotten about the tree, or maybe they were eager to see it that morning in the, in the, the uh, dawn light. Peter sees it, and he's astonished. And we're not sure exactly what he's astonished about. Um, some would say he's astonished that the fig tree is withered. Um, that is a possibility, although he has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He has seen um, great miracles. On the other hand, we keep seeing the disciples not get it. So whatever the case here, Peter loudly points out that the fig tree 
has been cursed. And I think what we see here, we see the consequence of fruitlessness is that God does not put up with fruitlessness forever. And that is a scary thing. God is, is not a God who sits back and always just lets things happen. No, he's an active God. He is involved in history. And here we see just a glimpse of that as Jesus curses this fig tree to show them what's going on at the temple. Now the temple was a beautiful structure. Um, Josephus tells us that you could see it from more than 30 miles away in the morning when the sun rose and hit the gold. The gold would glow. Um, it was a magnificent structure. If you've seen the pictures of the, the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem now, it is a massive structure. The temple was about seven stories higher and had gold all over it. It was a beautiful structure. Herod had poured lots and lots of resources into it. And yet, this beautiful building with the elaborate um, decorations, what should have been a, an amazing place, an awe-inspiring place, was in fact a place of fruitlessness, a place of ritual, empty ritual. And we see that from the roots. See, the tree did not just wither away on the leaves, but from the very source of its life, it's dead. And this is both a prophecy, as we'll see in the coming weeks, and an indictment of fruitlessness. We also see that Jesus is going to himself replace this temple. You see that in, in John 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, he said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. What a, what a ridiculous statement to the Jews' ears. They had been working on the temple from, for decades and yet Jesus is talking about the, the outdatedness of the temple. What Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem for is to make the temple unnecessary. And that's why in a few weeks we're going to see the veil that, that guards the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant is torn from top to bottom because the temple is no longer needed to approach God. That veil is no longer needed. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, we're told we have direct access to the throne. We can go before God. We don't need a priest to go in for us once a year. That is a humbling thing. That is a great blessing. And it is also, also comes with great risk as we come in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Well, as we move on, We'll see that point number two, Jesus gives the remedy to fruitlessness. He does not just leave these people floundering. He doesn't just judge and leave. He gives a remedy. And you see, these, these people, these disciples, the people that he was in contact with, his people, the Jews, had this view of the temple, that it was a special place, and it was, but that prayers were more effective on the temple grounds. Um... You'll see that even in the scriptures. Uh, much like uh, Muslims today will, will pray towards Mecca, we see even Daniel praying towards opening his window towards Jerusalem and praying towards Jerusalem, toward the, the place that God chose. But a after Daniel and in the exile and the return, um, God's people had distorted this. And they had even come to say um, things like this. When a man prays in Jerusalem, it is as though he prays before the throne of glory for the gate of heaven is in Jerusalem, and a door is always open for the hearing of prayer. As it is said, this is the gate of heaven. 
And there's nothing inherently wrong with the desire to pray in the special place that God had made for his name. But the Jews had distorted that. And there are dozens of other quotes that after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, some of the Jewish teachers said, we can't even talk to God anymore. The temple is gone. What access do we have? And that is, that is the wrong way. And that is what Jesus is trying to, to overturn and to show what is different. And that's why in verse 22, when he gives the remedy to fruitlessness, he answers in maybe an odd sort of way and says, simple words, have faith in God. Now, I, I, like, I like to read the, these, these scriptures and try to put myself in it. And if I'm Peter, my response to Jesus there would have been like, come again. Because look, look, what, look what Peter said. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Yeah, I, I know, but look at the fig tree. You, remember when you did this? And, and Jesus does this often. Um, he's, he's, not, he's not a jerk. He's not going off topic. What he's doing is he's steering Peter towards what is ultimately important here. He's, he's pointing him deeper. He says, have faith in God. And some scholars would say that starting in verse 22, we actually move away from the narrative and it's just Mark was just putting together a bunch of phrases from the rest of the Gospels. And, and surely what we're about to study is mentioned in other parts of the Gospels. We'll, we'll see obvious parallels. But I do believe that what Jesus is doing here is very important. And you, you'll notice he does not say have faith. He says have faith in God. That is huge because we live in a nation that loves faith. We love faith, right? We have presidential candidates right now. Um, you can't win the Republican nomination if you don't talk about faith, right? Frankly, you can't win the Democratic nomination either. You have to be, you have to talk about your faith. But that's usually where it ends. It's a subjective, my faith kind of thing. And, and frankly, um, we know this in, in our lives. Faith has to be put in something or someone. You may have heard this, I don't know, dozens of times. That chair, I have to have faith in that chair that it's going to hold me. Right? I have to have faith in the, the screws and the bolts and the construction for it to hold me. I don't have faith in my body that my body's going to keep me on a chair that's collapsing. I have to have faith in someone or something. And that's, that's of extreme importance in, in a nation and in a society that is, that is tolerant of faith, faith is good. But if we get any more specific than that, that, you're stepping on my toes. Don't tell me what to believe. Have faith in God. Hudson Taylor said, not a great faith we need, but faith in a great God. And that is, is an astonishingly clear quote. Not a great faith we need, but faith in a great God. Isn't that encouraging? That is why throughout the Gospels we hear talk of little faith. We need little faith. In fact, uh, look back at, at Mark chapter 9. Uh, just a, a great example of this. Jesus and the three disciples come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was in blazing glory with Moses and Elijah. They come down the mountain and the other nine are trying to cast out a demon. And they can't. They can't get this demon out of this boy. And Jesus comes down, asks how long it's been happening. And the, the father of the boy says... In verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. 
immediately the father of the child cried out and said in a very honest and raw way that we normally don't let ourselves go to, I believe. Help my unbelief. He does not claim to have perfect faith. He does not claim to have strong faith or great faith. But he sees this person in front of him who he can trust, who he believes in, not fully, not perfectly, but he places what trust he does have in Jesus. And of course, what does Jesus do? He casts the demon out of this boy, fulfills this man's desire. And so it's just a great example of what we see here, of it needing to have faith in God. It is not mere positive thinking. We, we are in the shadow of a cathedral um, down the street where, where this was preached. Positive thinking is the way to go. That will solve things. That will change things. Change your attitude. And it is good to have positive outlook because we have a God who is greater than all and will conquer all. And we know in the end he wins. And that's positive. But my positive thinking does not, does not enable me to do greater things in myself. I can't have faith in me. I must have faith in God. And so let's look. Let's look here at verse 22 again. Faith. Now that's a word we all know, we all say, we all understand. But we skip over it often. Faith. Occurs 243 times in the New Testament. It is a very, very important word. And in the Greek, this is not a one-time thing. It's in the present tense, tense, which means it's continual. Don't just have faith once. Have abiding faith, continuing faith. Faith that continues to go on throughout circumstances. So he's not saying have faith in God once. This is not a call to saving faith necessarily. It is a call to a life of faith. Faith must continue. And he's not calling them to a perfect faith. Listen, listen, Jesus understands our weaknesses. He participated in humanity. He became a man. He, he, was, he, he was hungry. He was tired. He was tempted. He understands our, our weaknesses and the things that we're tempted with and struggle with. And so this is not a call to, to say, you must have stronger faith, weaklings. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. And so the call to you this morning, the call to me this morning, is not necessarily to say, oh, but I don't have this faith. That may be the case. And if that is the case, I urge you today to come to Christ. Put faith in this great God. However, we need to understand that our, that our faith, our trust in God, does have ups and downs, doesn't it? Um, this pastor friend that I worked with, he, he lost his wife in his arms, on their bed, in their home. Do, do we expect him to, to, to not cry? Do we expect him to say, well, faith in God will solve all this. It's okay. She's in heaven. We would think something's wrong with him, that he's trying to shield himself from something. No, there are ups and there are downs. It's hard to trust God in difficulties. It is, it is easy to say God loves me and God is good when everything's going well. But when you're out of a job, when, when you can't make ends meet, when people die, the triples are in Oregon right now. Um, Fred has lost his mother. She didn't know Jesus. That's not an easy thing. 
So don't feel like this call this morning are for super Christians. There are no super Christians. This is a call to have faith. Whatever faith that you can place in this God this morning. And so we move on to point three. Jesus explains the fruitful response of faith. So in verse 22, Jesus says, have faith in God. And I think the next verses flow out of it. Okay, they flow right out of the command to have faith in God. Jesus explains the fruitful response of faith. And this is where we've got to be careful, okay? 23 and 24. We would not say this out loud, but this doesn't sound like a lot of the rest of Scripture. <laughs> this sounds dangerous. This sounds too good to be true. Verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That is a, that is a, a, a striking promise. And it only gets stronger in verse 24. But here we just want to point out some things in verse 23. Whoever says to this mountain, uh, is very likely they're climbing up a mountain as Jesus says this, uh, the Mount of Olives, um, which where they would have crested and then seen Jerusalem laid out below them. It could refer to the Mount of Olives. It could refer to the Temple Mount itself, which also juts up from the valleys around it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be those mountains, but, but they were familiar with mountains. And Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, and a mountain is not a little thing, um, in, in California, I like to explain to people that are not from around here that there's a difference between hills and mountains. <laughs> um, some of us have climbed Mount Whitney. That's a mountain. <laughs> There's no hill. <laughs> that is a mountain. And, and mountains are huge things. In fact, we sang about the, the likening of, of God's attributes to mountains. They're sturdy. They're strong. They're big. And Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and you don't doubt that it's going to happen for you. Now, the disciples may have been able to see the Dead Sea from here as well. If you stand on top of the Mount of Olives, and if you come to Israel with us in 2013, you'll be able to see the Dead Sea from the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is more than 3,000 feet in elevation, and the Dead Sea is the lowest point on the surface of the earth at more than 1,300 feet below sea level. A very drastic drop in about 15 miles. And so the picture may have been the disciples are walking up, they see the Dead Sea, they see this mountain, and they see exactly what Jesus is saying. Mountain, boom. <laughs> That's impossible. No one, no one, no one would think that they, they could move that. Uh, even with all the technology in the world, it would, it would be a monumental process in which to do that. And this is, this is exactly um, what Jesus has done before. He's using hyperbole. He, he's, he's exaggerating for a purpose. Just like in, in previous chapters when he says the camel fitting through the eye of a needle. Okay, no one goes, you know what? I wonder if I could get a camel through the eye of a needle. Hmm. Let's give it a shot. No one does that. The purpose is you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. You know, plug in whatever phrase you use for impossible things in your life. Okay? Snowflakes, chance in hell. Right? That's impossible, okay? Those are the kind of things that we say, hyperbole, to say you can't do it. And in fact, we use this phrase, right? Move mountains. Okay, we, we actually use that. We say these things. So it's important to understand this. It's also important to understand that the rabbis of the time used this phrase often. So this is something they were familiar with. Um, those who were strong in the faith, the, the people in the Old Testament and some of the great rabbis, were seen as those who could uproot mountains. In fact, that was a title for some of them. Mountain uprooters, okay? Great faith, great action for God. 
And so Jesus uses this familiar phrase and, and inserts it into his own meaning here about having faith, the response of faith. And so we see that Jesus makes an incredible promise. Um, none of us have moved mountains. I'm, I would put money on it. This past week, you did not say to a mountain, I would have seen it on the news. <laughs> okay, it w- we would have seen this happen. And yet, and yet, what do we perceive as impossible in our lives? What do we see as things that cannot happen? In Luke 1, 37, it's stated that for nothing will be impossible for God. And in that whole passage in Luke 1, you've got an old barren woman getting pregnant and you've got a young virgin getting pregnant. That doesn't happen. (laughs) That doesn't work. And yet God does these things. This very Jesus who's saying this does not have an earthly father. It's pretty unique. This is the Jesus who says these things. The Jesus who came from an impossible conception, an impossible birth. And so we see the impossibility of being thrown into the sea. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 13 in the famous love passage. I'll just read this to you. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith, all faith, so as to remove mountains. It's an understood phrase. Jesus is not settling for kind of low-class, easy, cheap miracles. He goes to the impossible. And that's where this helps us think through our doubt, our faith, and what we deem to be impossible. Ever given up on praying for someone to become a Christian? Raise your hand. Who has given up on praying, even for a season, for someone? I, I, I have lots of unsaved family members. I have given up praying. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. We see that even in our midst. Another thing to point out here is in verses 23, 24, 25, you see the word you. Um, in the Greek, that's plural. He's not just saying you, Nick. He's saying you, we. <laughs> okay? You all. Okay, dare I say, y'all. <laughs> okay? That is the you that Jesus is, is, is using here. He's not just saying you in your private little life that don't ever tell anybody about and just kind of mm, me. No, we, you, y'all. This is, this, all y'all. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> I need some help there. <laughs> This is an important thing to see as well because it just not, it's not just staying in your private prayer life. It means in our prayers. And I would urge you on prayer Sundays that we have four times a year here at Village Bible Church to be involved in prayer Sundays where as a group we, we scatter to different rooms around campus and we're able to pray together as, as a group. And we're able to lift each other up to the throne of mercy. What an exciting thing to do. You don't have to go into that room thinking you have to perform. Um, you need to go into that room expecting a great God to answer. And he answers quiet prayers. He answers silent prayers. He answers bold prayers. He answers weak prayers. And so I would encourage you even in a few weeks, February 4th, something like that, we will be 5th? February 5th. We'll be scattering in the Sunday school hour to pray. I urge you to do that with your brothers and sisters. Verse 24 scares me. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, whatever you ask in prayer. Do you ever do that with your kids? Hey, whatever, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. No, that is a foolish thing to say. That's a foolish thing to say, right? Your children will not be like, well, he probably, did, probably doesn't mean that, so I'll just say, can I have a pencil? Daddy just said whatever. He's opening his wallet. <laughs> whatever you ask in prayer, check this out. Believe that you have received it. Like I'm going to ask for something and I already believe as I'm asking that I've already got it. That's difficult. That's hard. And that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Because that isn't true in my life. Is that true in your life? How many people have asked for things in the last week and you haven't gotten it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, the, the two people I talked about at the beginning of the, of the sermon who, who died, their families, their families prayed for healing. They wanted those people to live. Both those ladies who died were in their 50s. God... What, whatever you ask, we didn't receive it. Not, something's not connecting here. What's going on? We're not even done with the verse. Believe that you received it and it will be yours. That sounds like an infomercial or something. Or a used car salesman. Right? It's yours, right? That's, that's, that's what ends up happening here. And I read this verse and I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. And, and this is what gets abused. This is what false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, put on weak and desperate and helpless people. Send your money to me. I'll give you a prayer cloth. God will provide. God wants you wealthy. You're a son or daughter of the king. And then when that doesn't happen, what happens? Oh, you must not have had enough faith. Let's try it again. Give me 20 more dollars. That is sick and despicable, and God will judge those people. And they abuse this passage. This is why we should be grateful for this book in its entirety. There are people around the world that don't have this book. And we know that we can look in the rest of Scripture and interpret Scripture with Scripture. So very quickly, because I'm long-winded and running out of time. 1 John, 1 John 5, 1 John chapter 5, as John nears the end of his letter, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, again, an audacious claim, if we ask anything, next phrase, according to his will, he hears us. Okay, a qualifier, right? Go back to the gospel of John now. John 15. This is Thursday night of Passion Week. Two days later, Jesus is going to say this in John 15. Talking about the vine, the branches. Banner over me is love, right? He goes to verse 7. If you abide in me, if, 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 if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we also have examples of how not to abuse this. We'll see in Mark 14. So go to Mark 14. In the garden, we'll cover this in the coming months. Jesus Christ himself, the one who's speaking these words, is in the garden on his face before God, 
pleading with him to do something that God, his father, does not do. Chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. See, Jesus knows this. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Take it. But Jesus gives us the key to interpreting this passage. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 is a thorn in the flesh. Whatever it is, he pleads with God, take it away. God doesn't take it away. He pleads with him again, take it away. He doesn't take it away. Take it away, third time. God says, I'm not going to take it away. You get to keep it. That's your very own personalized thorn. But he says, but my grace is sufficient for you. And he says, in your weakness, my strength is made powerful, glorious. We see it. What an astonishing thing. Paul, we all look to Paul as this incredibly faithful man, and he was faith-filled even. And God says, no, to request. So Mark 11, anything you ask, whatever you ask, believe you've received it. Just, just conjure that up. Ferrari, Ferrari, Ferrari. I've received it. Now that's a silly, silly way of illustrating it. But how about this? God, save my wife. I believe you can. And the heart monitor stops. Then what do we do? We're not laughing now. This is deadly serious. And we see here, Jesus is giving to his disciples with hyperbole, by, by exaggerating for a point, to say, God is great, God is good, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he can do anything, so ask. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, okay, what, what, which one of you fathers, if your son asks for bread, is going to give him a stone? Right? I hope you've never done that, right? Daddy, can I have a piece of bread? <laughs> right? No, that's, that's mean. That's, that's horrible. And God says, you're evil. Dads, you all know that. I don't need to tell you. You're evil. And he says, Jesus says, God is good and he desires to give good things to his children. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. So, so there's, there's a fine line here. We've got to be very careful. And I'm not going to solve this today. But we have got to believe that we can come to God and ask. And then we ask God, help me to ask what is right and what is within your will. And help me to submit to your answers. Listen, God answers prayer like crazy. God answers prayer like crazy. He does the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. Abraham's wife, Sarai, barren, 80 years old, gives birth. Isaac, Rebecca, nothing's happening, no babies. Okay, God gives birth. Jacob and Rachel, Rachel, no babies, no babies, no babies. Other wife having all kinds of kids. God opens her womb. Three patriarchs, wives in a row, barren, and God gives babies. You can tell me stories in your life of things that are impossible that God's done. 
God has done impossible things, and he still will, and he still does. But we are not in a position to know what God has for us that is best. I may think that this is best for me, but we see in, in the example of Paul, God knows what was best for Paul. And Paul submits to that, and he doesn't stop asking. He continues to ask. He continues to ask. Lastly, and I've got to just wrap this up in a minute or two. Point four, Jesus warns of a barrier to effective prayer. Jesus warns of a barrier to effective prayer. Verse 25, And whatever you, whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is important. This reflects the Lord's prayer. Right? A heart that does not forgive others does not understand the forgiveness that God gives. There's a, there's a parable right, of the unforgiving steward who owes, owes his master billions of dollars. He'll never pay it back if he lived to be a thousand years. And the master says, I forgive that loan. It's gone. And that man goes home to the guy that owes him a Big Mac and chokes him because he can't pay him back. He does not understand forgiveness. God's not going to listen to that prayer. And God may do something, to get the attention of that person. But we need to be a forgiving people to understand that the, the reason we can even approach the throne and ask God for something is because of the cross, because of Jesus being nailed to that cross and bearing your sin in mine and forgiving our sin through no merit of our own. That's what the gospel is. And then to go and live our lives not forgiving people for sometimes ridiculously petty things, demonstrates misunderstanding of God and who He is. And so this morning, I want us to go away believing in a God who does the impossible. And I want us to go away asking for more faith. I believe, help my unbelief. God wants to give. He does give good gifts to his children. He's a good father. So let's ask him. And then let's live in joy with what he gives us, knowing that for those of us who believe, he only gives for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough passage. And, and it's hard to live out. I confess that my faith is weak. God, I ask for, for you to help me in my unbelief. You continually answer prayers in our lives, God. I ask even now, in the confidence that you answer prayer, that you would provide jobs for the jobless in our church. That you would provide health to the sick in our church. That you would pro provide salvation for those strained in and out of our church. And God, that you would give us the faith to trust you, to believe in you, no matter the circumstances. Because you know all things. You can do all things. And we believe that. And we trust in it. In Jesus' name, amen.